I was born here just the same as you Another time, another day I'm sure the good Lord took his time Made each of us just this way I walked beside you step by step And it never crossed my mind That I would grow up one of the different kind That didn't stop me from chopping the wood Scraping my knees like a boy should Going down to the creek in the noonday sun Wringing out my shirt when the work got done First things first, I'm a blue collar man Scars on my knuckles, dust on my hands Probably wouldn't have ever known I've got a man waiting on me at home To tell you the truth, I don't want to fight just want to say one thing I'll write to you Ain't we flesh and blood all through? And ain't we brothers too? job and worked right by you walked down in that hole beside you thought i heard some whisper sound got found out word got around got made out for something i'm not called everything but a child of god didn't mind to show it out in the parking lot so I cut my coal with my head hung down Just like a stranger in my own town Got bitter day by day Went home every night with the mess they made First things first, I'm a blue collar man With scars on my knuckles, dust on my hands Probably wouldn't have ever known I've got a man waiting on me at home Tell you the truth, I don't want to fight I just want to say one thing outright to you Ain't we flesh and blood all through? And ain't we brothers too? Tell me I'm not man enough To set foot in that mind my face this time To tell you the truth I don't want to fight Just want to say one thing outright to you Ain't we flesh and blood all through And ain't we brothers too I've known since I was 12, like I made the decision at 12, like, oh, I'll never fit in. So stop trying. And I think to me, and I know that sounds crazy, to me, that's the, the epitome of country queer. The, those of us who've realized we'll never fit in. 
will never be the queers who are counted. That was Sharon Holland, recorded in June 2017, in her home on the outskirts of Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I'm Rachel Geringer, and today on Mountain Talk, we'll be hearing excerpts from an ongoing oral history project I've been working on since 2013, called Country Queers. I founded this project out of an intense sense of isolation from other rural and small-town queer folks in my home state of West Virginia, and out of deep frustration with the lack of rural queer visibility and history. Since then, I've had the true honor of interviewing 60 incredible people in 15 states. Today, we'll hear excerpts from some of their stories. First, we'll hear from Sam Gleaves. Sam is a musician from Southwest Virginia whose music is featured throughout this episode. This interview took place on his porch in Berea, Kentucky in July 2016. My name is Sam Gleaves. I was born and raised in Withville, Virginia, which is a small town in Wythe County in, in the southwest part of Virginia, um, sort of where the Blue Ridge Mountains begin there. And I have lived for the past six years in Berea, Kentucky. I went to Berea College. I graduated with a degree in folklore in 2014. And ever since I have lived in Berea and traveled playing music and also worked at Berea College. So that I've made a lot of dear, wonderful friends here in, in the Berea community. And so that's why I live here, even though I love Southwest Virginia and that's my, my home, that's where I'm from. So that's me, I reckon. <laughs> I think of tradition in two contexts, I guess. And the one that I think of favorably and that I'm most attached to is related to traditional arts and, and folklore and um, traditional music. And so ever since I was about 12 years old, I've been playing traditional music and I've a lot of mentors um, older than me and also my age have been really generous in sharing a lot of knowledge about our region's music and the stories that it's of the people that made it and what it's built from and gave me a place to belong in the music community because we all loved these old songs and tunes that had been handed down, you know, and had... Um, each generation adds their own purpose to the music and why the, why they identify with it, why they choose to carry it on. You know, so that's one context in which I think of tradition and which has really given my life a lot of meaning and has sort of given me a compass or a lens to see the world through. You know, this music, that's really what I think of it as. And so that's my favorable context of tradition and then I think of the the tradition that is norms you know and that is like this is how we um, this is how we've always done it so we're not going to improve it and we're not going to change it and if someone's excluded then they're excluded you know or that kind of thought of tradition like uh, 1950s sort of way of looking at our social structure or, you know, like that, I, that also comes to mind when I think of tradition, you know, 
So, and that, and some of those conservative, deeply rooted, problematic things about tradition are also present in the traditional music world or just in, um, in Appalachian culture as I've experienced it or, um, Southern culture, you know, or just rural culture uh, all over the world. You know, I'm sure that a lot of the um, people struggle with tradition and change. and People struggle with how they assign meaning to the way they were, were brought up and their heritage and what they feel like is right or the pattern they were given to approach the world with and then their individuality and how who they want to be as a human being and how it may or may not fit into that pattern, you know. So I see that um, I've experienced tradition as both an affirming, beautiful thing that I feel like I'm able to express myself through, through in traditional music and I've also experienced it in um, struggling to find myself you know, around some of the the cultural context, you know, that I grew up with, I guess. So that's what I think about. That's good. Um, do you think that, do you think there are queer traditions? I do. I definitely do. And I've explored this. Well, what immediately comes to mind is my friend Carrie Klein, is a wonderful oral historian, lives in Elkins, West Virginia. Um, she and her partner, Michael, did a series of interviews with LGBTQ people from West Virginia, and which Carrie turned into uh, a staged reading, a, a drama production called Revelations, and it celebrates the resiliency of LGBTQ people. And so when I think about resiliency, I think about tradition because I think that there is a tradition of people being resilient um, in Appalachia and I think queer people especially so I mean the ones that I've known you know especially the ones that wanted to live in their home communities for most of their lives I, I've been really fortunate to have some um, older gay friends that either mentors in the music world or also, or just community members um, that feel like family to me, you know. And just the way that I've seen people deal with, you know, like I think of one older friend of mine who's out and he deals with, you know, sort of like just misunderstandings about who he is all the time. Because, like in in bars or wherever, you know, where like these straight, you know, pretty gruff country dudes that he's able to relate to because he's so funny and he's so um, effervescent and he's a person that you want to know, you know. So then he deals with these misunderstandings and these disrespectful things that get said, you know, or just like heteronormative things or misogynist things or whatever. He's also like a real progressive person politically, you know, so he's dealing with all this BS that he encounters 
on a regular basis with this humor and self-assurance and, you know, this beautiful, you know, it's a defiance, but it's a subtle kind of defiance, you know, in that it's just, um, it's a knowledge, a deep knowledge of who he is and what he's about and what he believes, you know, and he doesn't let that, he's not going to let that be challenged by what anyone else thinks. You know, so I think of that as, it's a tradition of being resilient, you know, and so I watched him and I, you know, I don't think I thought about it. Um, I, I knew him from the time I was a teenager. He, he grew up with my parents, um, knew them, well, knew my whole family, you know, and I, so he feels like family to me. And I don't think I, I thought of this, what's the word, consciously, you know, but I think unconsciously I just absorbed that, oh, oh you can be who you are and be happy and thrive, you know, and you can, you don't have to take your flack off anybody, you know. So that was by observing somebody else, you know, who probably from their family, you know, he probably drew that from from his family and his sense of pride about being who he, was, who he is. Pride in terms of his heritage and where he comes from and also pride in terms of um, being gay and unashamed, you know. So, and there's a, there's lots of other people I can think of that display that kind of resiliency, queer people from the mountains in their own way. I interviewed Robin in September of 2016 in her home in Prospect, Virginia. We sat down in her living room on the small farm that's been in her family for generations. Robin is a hospice nurse and lives on the family farm with her mother, two guard dogs, and several goats. The first question is just for you to introduce yourself, your name, your age, where you live. Okay. Um, my name is Robin Thurkill. I'm 41. Uh, I live in Prospect, Virginia, which is between Richmond and Lynchburg, kind of, uh, just outside of Farmville, Virginia. Great. And so I guess um, if you were going to describe it here to somebody who's never been here, doesn't know anything about what it's like here, how would you describe this? Um, it's rural, but it's not, um, you know, the desert or, you know, it's not the most rural it could be, but it's pretty rural. Um, it's, it's a lot of kind of one horse towns. The town of Prospect does not even have one stoplight. Um, there's probably 15 churches, but no stoplights. Um, so it's one of those, it's one of those kind of towns. I guess I'm curious just about like your your family history on this land or what you know about it or what did like um your grandparents did they farm or yeah um my great grandparents moved here from west virginia bought 40 acres of land um Where in west virginia do you know? no i don't <laughs> um i could probably look it up but i'm not sure um when was that do you know it was in the, at the turn of the century wow um and actually if you think about it my great grandfather um, would have then been um, a black man traveling from West Virginia, um, if you just kind of wrap your head around that. Yeah. Um, and he came here, and the, him and my great-grandmother bought the land on credit. Um, out of the original 40 acres, 35 are still here. Um, my grandmother and her, I don't know, 14 brothers and sisters were born here. My mom and her five brothers and sisters were born here. Um, that, like, wooden structure up there, 
Um, the porch is the porch to the original farmhouse. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, I mean, it's, I mean, it's important to me. There's a lot of history here. Um, my mom, um, this is Prince Edward County, Virginia. And when um, they passed the law to Brown versus Board of Education to integrate the school systems, mm -hmm. uh, Prince Edward County closed all the public schools. Because it, yeah, because they didn't want to integrate. And at the time, my mom was in grade school, probably, and um, her and her brothers had to go to Baltimore to go to school, and they went to stay with family. Mm -hmm. um, if you can imagine that as an um, as an elementary schooler, um, plus the fact that you know they farmed. Um, here. So, you know, sending your children away is sending your laborers away. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so that was, um, that's a big piece of history for Prince Edward County. Um, and so, you know, my, my mom was, you know, at the March on Washington, you know, the civil rights movement and stuff like that. So they, that was a big, big part of her, uh, upbringing. Mm -hmm. Um, so your mom lived in D.C. most of her? She no, she grew up here. After they opened the schools back, she came back home. Oh, and okay. then when she graduated high school, she went to um, some kind of school in, in D.C. Hmm. And um, she uh, was up there, and she met my dad, and, and she worked for the federal government for like 35 years. So, hmm. um, And then she retired, and then she went back to school um, after she retired. And um, then what'd she go back to school for? This is this is good information. This is good history that you should include. Okay, great. <laughs> she, uh, you don't have to. Oh yeah. <laughs> the um, there was a philanthropist who um, created a scholarship for um, people that were affected by the school closings. Huh. So it was a Brown versus Board of Education scholarship. Huh. So they gave her a scholarship to go back to school. So she went back to school just because she had the scholarship. She had the opportunity. So she got a, a bachelor's degree in business administration. Are there questions you think I should ask other people? So there's more kind of on this list. I didn't ask all of them just because it's okay. <laughs> skip some. But are there uh, questions that you'd be really curious to know from other people? Um, I guess I wonder... You you were asking about like needing community. I guess I don't know if you asked that. I think you mm -hmm. might have. Um, I'm curious to know if that makes people not thrive in the country because they feel like they need the community, like they need to be in mm -hmm. the city because of the the culture and the community. I guess I'm I wonder about that. Mm -hmm. um, because it's something that's like. Hard for you, or because you're just curious if that's hard I'm for other curious. people? I'm just curious. If it's hard for other people, it's not hard for me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> no one could ever come here and out be okay. Actually, that's not true. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm okay. I'm curious if that makes people not want to. <laughs> I, I, it, it, sound, it sounds a little, it sounds a little, I don't know, arrogant or whatever, but I think I live in paradise. I don't know why everybody doesn't want to do this. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, like, I, I, I really don't understand why everyone wouldn't want to live this this way. I met Tessa at the historic Highlander Center in East Tennessee in October of 2017. We were both attending an out-in-the-south LGBTQ regional gathering 
that was hosted by the Appalachian Community Fund. We sat down in a quiet room to talk. Okay, okay. Um, Tessa Oskander, I will be 22 on Monday, so, and it's Saturday today, so two days from now. Awesome. And where do you live? Cookville, Tennessee. Um, And how do you identify? I am a transgender woman. Woo. Uh, that there's lots. Well, I mean, there's lots of different identities. I'm guessing you meant the queer ones, but I actually, I mean whatever you want to talk about. Okay. Well, yeah. Um, let's see, I'm a chemical engineering student. Uh, I'm an Eagle Scout, black belt. Um, just lots of different things. Um, I have an awesome boyfriend, and my parents are still in Cookville, so there's that. How did it go with them when you came out? Uh, it was it was pretty rough to begin with, but uh, after a lot of long conversations and convincing them that conversion therapy and all that stuff is bad. Um, and, uh, or for, for my dad, I had like showed him medical articles, uh, proving why that is wrong. And then he was just like, oh, okay. And then, um, with my mom, uh, she was trying to read Bible verses to me, like the second conversation we had. And I'm like, you're not even Christian. And she was, she was just like, <laughs> so yeah, there, there was that, um, but did I think it's say, really... St- did, you t- did you say that to her? Did you yeah. say you're not even Christian? What did she say to that? Uh, well, I mean, she, she wasn't. So she was like... Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> but um, it was... I don't, I don't know. Like, they, they, they came around, though. Probably about six months later, they finally started to be like, okay, this is a thing. Because I was already on hormones at that point. And they were like, well, there, there's... It's better. It'd be easier if they just accepted it at that point, because like, because they were not wanting to say my pronouns and stuff like that, and I was being obnoxious and being like, "No, it's actually this," <laughs> and then like every time they would mess it up, I would correct them, and then they just got tired of hearing me correct them. So, so now they're they've they've come around a bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, so my mom initially said that she never wanted to see me in a dress and stuff like that, and um. It, it actually got to the point where um, probably about eight months ago, she actually bought me a dress. They like went to the store and she bought me a dress and it was such a big deal. That's hilarious. It was awesome. What's the dress? Uh, so it's this white dress with blue stripes and it's, it's very floral. <laughs> Do you like it? Do you wear it? Yeah, I do. It actually, it's one of the nicest dresses I have, and it fits really well, so I love it. Um, she was actually close to getting, like, the same dress, but in her size, too, oh which that would have been super cute. But... <laughs> that would be really cute. Yeah. She didn't get it, though? No. <laughs> That's so amazing. Not cute, but we're this close. <laughs> so. That's so sweet. Mm-hmm. Um, so it it is possible for your family to turn around. It just takes, it can, it can take a while. So yeah. mm-hmm. I 
That's interesting. Do you think that if you had grown up somewhere else, like a bigger city or somewhere um, somewhere different, that it might have been easier for you to come out earlier or, um, I don't know, just a different experience? Yeah, I think, well, I think that you would have the information accessible to you. So I, I would have known sooner. And I don't know if that would have been a good or bad thing because um, – I would have had to be closeted if I if I did if I was completely sure about it I'd have to be closeted about it and I wouldn't be able to discuss it with my family due to like safety issues and things so cuz in order to be able to have some of those conversations with my parents I had to be living out of the house so David and I met through a mutual friend who lives in Austin, Texas. We sat down in her yard in June of 2014. At the time, David lived and farmed in nearby Bastrop. He now farms in eastern Texas with his husband. It was a windy day, and there was construction happening in the lot next door, so you'll hear a bit of background noise in this recording. Uh, my name's David Rodriguez. I'm 26 years old, and I live in Bastrop, Texas. Great. Um, how do you identify? Identify as a male and um, as a gay male. A gay male as, who identifies as a person of color. Mm-hmm. A Hispanic gay male, so. Mm-hmm. Um, so where were you born? Where did you grow up? What was it like where you grew um, up? I grew up in a small town. Uh, it's near a small town. Um, population of 10,000 people. And it's called Wharton, Texas. It's very um, agriculturally oriented. When I grew, when I was growing up, it was all about rice and corn and cotton. Um, our county produced, I, it, it, it's been said that our county produces more rice than the entire nation of China. Um, but that's changed um, because of the, the water crisis in Texas. Um, so now there isn't any more rice farming um, where I live. So the industry is almost completely dead. Wow. Um, and so what was your childhood like? Like, what, what was your family like? What kind of, I don't know, any childhood memories of... Well, I grew up in a very, like, um, Tejano-like type home here in Texas. Um, you know, my family's been in Texas longer than Texas has been the state. Um, so it's been... It's different growing up. Um, because still had, like, a Hispanic, like, upbringing, um, but not so much of an impact, uh, or not so much of an identifier as being from Mexico, but being Tejano. So like, um, that was a child that, that's a big part of my growing up and childhood. And so my childhood though was very different. Um, my mother and father split up when I was younger. And so, um, then it just became my mother and I and my younger siblings. Um, and, my mother and I, uh, she was 18 when she had me, and so we kind of grew up together. Um, it was real interesting. And now my mother is my best friend in the entire world. Um, so it has been fun, and having a younger mom is great because, I mean, you can experience everything together, and we're very open and honest with each other about things. Uh, used to not be that way, but now we are, mm-hmm. um, and have gotten a lot closer. And so... Then what was your coming out experience like? Did you come out all at once? Did you? When did you come out? How did it go? Well, 
I have two different ways. Like in high school, it was pretty much known. And then I just, you know, it was like there were some bullying and I just kind of started to own it and accepted it and realized, Hey, yeah, I am gay. I'm not going to hide it anymore. Um, so I was open in high school, but it was a small town that I lived in. And so no one ever wanted to say anything to my mother about it. So I was open in public, but not in private, um, which is very different, um, dynamic for some people. And then one day my mom asked me if I was gay. It was on Halloween of like 2005. She asked me if I was gay and I had promised myself that I would always be honest if she asked me. If she had the nerve to ask me the question, I had the nerve to answer honestly. And so she asked me and at first she said, are you gay? And I was like, um, yes, I'm always happy. And then, um, she was like, that's not the question I'm asking you. And, um, the next question was, are you a homosexual? Do you like having sex with men? And my answer was like, yes. Um, I do. And, uh, she told me I had, uh, 60 seconds to get my shoes on and get out of the house. And, um, how old are you? I was 17 at the time. And, um, she said, you have 60 seconds to get out of the house. And if you don't, I'm going to hit you with this baseball bat. And she went and got a baseball bat. So there wasn't any option of staying at home. So I left and walked and I have never felt freer than I did that very moment that I walked out of that house and felt completely free and honest with myself. Um, and I made a promise to myself that day walking to the gas station that I would never hide who I am for anyone ever again. And, um, I've stayed true to that. Like I don't, I'm very honest and open about who I am and what I do and what I believe in. And, um, my mother and I had a horrible relationship after that. Like for six months, we hated each other and we're just argumentative with each other and fighting all the time. And, I didn't live with her anymore and was living with whoever I could live with and that kind of thing. Almost didn't graduate high school and finally graduated and um, got all that stuff done, got done with school, got out of there and then went to college and um, left. And uh, that was, it was pretty rough time that year. Like was pretty rough dealing with all of that. And uh, my mom finally has come around and now it's not even an issue. You're listening to Mountain Talk on WMMT. On today's show, we're hearing excerpts of interviews with rural and small-town LGBTQ people from the ongoing oral history project, Country Queers. Next up, we'll hear Sharon Holland, a professor of critical race theory, queer theory, and feminist theory at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. The first question is your name and your age and where you live. Oh, my age. Okay. Well, my name, Sharon P. Holland or Sharon Patricia Holland. I live on in Chapel Hill in Old School Road, which used to apparently be called Old Colored Road. That's right. My dog's whining now. This is awesome. She wants to be part of the interview. And I uh, was born in 1964, which I guess means I'm 53 years old. Great. So I guess I'm almost an old country queer. <laughs> <laughs> You get to decide when that happens. I do. Oh, good, good, good. (laughs) So if you're going to describe what it's like where you live to somebody who's never been here, has no sense of the place, um, how would you describe it? Magical. Magical. Um, When I first bought the land, 
I was really excited because there was a, you know, I was like, I want to live in a place, I want to have an acreage and I want to live in a place with a driveway with an old shed on it, you know, that looks kind of country and kind of scary. At the same time, um, I want to live at the end of a dirt road. And this is the end, this is like the end of the dirt road for blackness and that it's 10 minutes from town, just in case anything breaks off, <laughs> right? Um, let me see, and it's not Alamance County. All right, hold on for a sec. Okay. Dogs off. Go, go. Go on, both of you. Go on. <laughs> go on. Country queers and their animals. Um, and so I wanted to kind of give a name to the property, and I thought of it as very sweet. A lot of people think it's kind of like a sanctuary. <laughs> um, but it was my brother, Aton, my non-bio brother, who was visiting once, and he said, why don't you call it sweet negritude? And I'm like, yeah, because blackness is bittersweet, you know? Um, and also because it seemed to resonate with the intellectual thought that pretty much brought me to all the things in my life that I think are good. Hmm. What, um, do you want to follow that? The change? negritude movement, <laughs> you know, um, pan-Africanism. Um, you know, I always tell people I'm African-American culturally. I'm a per person of African descent as a human, which but then we all are, so... Um, and I am black politically and that I believe in black freedom struggles for global blackness. And I wouldn't know anything about those struggles if I hadn't read Fanon or Ami Césaire, <laughs> just a whole range of authors, um, who helped Du Bois, Tubman, or about Tubman at least, um, you know, Harriet Jacobs, just all of those struggles for black freedom and very complicated struggles among complicated people. I guess that's what I like about the word term negritude. It talks about black freedom, black genius, but it also talks about the, that we're more than just our suffering. And I think that's important. So this place is more than just about black suffering. It's about ooh, the gift of blackness. Emphasized by an acorn falling on a tree. <laughs> Clearly an ancestor throwing a funny rock at the window or something crazy <laughs> like that. And my dog's decided to clean herself. That's awesome. Yeah, it's good background noise, honey. When did you, you sort of talked about this, but when did you first like know you were queer? Oh, man. Um, Maud. I was eight. I mean, I didn't... Let's put it this way. That was the first time I was unafraid to be queer, which is a nice way to be queer. Like, there's nothing wrong with this, right? I mean, there's nothing like those early girl friendships, you know. The you know you and I see it now with, you know, our kids. You know, I see them like take to a particular friend, and I'm like, there's something so beautiful in that, and you just want that to last for them, right? When I was, I went to the pool, and I used, I love to swim. And the deeper, the better. Like, I probably would have been a really good diver, not afraid of depth at all. And so I used to play in back in the days when we, you know, we had the, the neighborhood pool in our complex. I used to go swimming a lot. And a lot of times, because I was really athletic, I used to, like, play with the boys. And so, but a lot of urban kids of color 
didn't swim. So when we all went to pool parties, they would hang out in the shallow end, but, you know, a lot of the boys and I would hang out in the deep end. And so I had this, I've always had this kind of like, you know, I'd go to the towel and hang with the girls and they'd be like, I'll be back in about 20 minutes. I want to go actually for a swim. So you know that moment where you're coming around the corner and you see in the distance, you see all the girls looking at you and whispering and you just know, here's your moment, right? And you're like, oh God, I'm going to get nailed. And I remember the ringleader came up to me. Of course, I could tell she was like, you know, the appointed one came up to me. And this is the reason why people thought I was weird. She came to me. She said, you know, Sharon, if you were a boy, you'd be really cute. And so for a second, I was like, I don't really understand the the comment. I was like, well, that wasn't so bad. And I, and that was, then I realized years later, oh, that's what made me weird. Right. Because instead of like running off crying, I was like, and I stuck my chest out and I had like a really good swimming suit on because I always wore like really nice swimsuits. One of those 70s ones where you had the bikini top and then like the line thing that was attached to the bottom and the front and the back because, you know, my mother didn't like it that when I dove my under, my pants came off all the time and I didn't like it either. So she made sure the top, it wasn't a one piece, but it wasn't a two piece either. And I remember sticking my chest out and putting my hands on my hips and I was just like, cool, you know, <laughs> and or and I also kind of gave her a cheeky kind of like, yeah, you're cute, too. You know, just that kind of cocky kind of, and they were all like, that did not go down the way we expected, right? And I remembered, but then later I understood what they were trying to say. And I was like, oh, they see me and they know me. They know that I'm I'm a boy girl, right? And so even while I performed it for them, I remember my mom picking me up in the car. She goes, why are you so quiet? I said, no, no reason. I was 13. I'm like, no reason. And I think that was the summer that I got my period. I think this was right before I got my period. Um, and, um, yeah, so I think that was like a moment where I realized my queerness, but my queerness was not the kind of queerness that was decided, you know, like I didn't feel like I was a lesbian. I didn't feel like I was a a straight woman either, but my friend Marjorie Levinson once told me that people and I see, you know, people see you, Sharon, and some love that certain quality in you and are attracted toward it and want to be with that. And other people are totally afraid of that quality. She goes, unfortunately, that's most of the people who are in the other end of the spectrum, but there are a few who really kind of dig that and will treasure it and want to be um, around it. And there were other people who will try to kill it. And I was just like, oh, yeah, I, I experienced the, the kind of deep loathing. Yes, I do. Um, so I guess I've had three kind of coming out in a way. Um, and then I started actively being a lesbian identified or woman identified woman um, at the same time feeling kind of genderqueer. And I remember it was Sherry Moraga. I told Sherry Moraga, you know, I go to the club and, you know, I try to talk to women. I'm going to do the thing I'm never supposed to do, but you know her. I know. It's I'm really funny. I know, right? <laughs> just kidding. I know people say that all the time. Like even my wife is just like, you're friends with Jewel Gomez on Facebook. And I'm like, yeah, I'm like, yeah, Sheree is like totally awesome and helped mentor me because Sheree told me, Sharon, you're a soft butch. Women really like that. You need to like work on that, you know, because I'm like, 
I had a, my my dear friend Sylvia Villarreal was like we were inseparable like when I was in graduate school and you know she was definitely like a butch's butch you know and I'm just like you know a giggling butch right and so Sly and I would hang out and Sly would just laugh at me and she's like Sharon you're so funny you know she goes first off you brought a book to the bar maybe that'd be your first clue like maybe there'd be a reason why people don't want to talk to you you know <laughs> but um, but it was Sheree Moraga who taught me when I was at Stanford, actually, after graduate school. And it was my first assistant professorship. And we were talking in the parking lot. And I was kind of crying. I was just like, I really would like to find someone. But I just feel like I'm, I don't fit in. And she's just like, because you don't, you know, that's you're an Ann Arbor dyke. Stop being an Ann Arbor dyke, you know. And she goes, and start being a San Francisco dyke. You know, go your own way, you know. And so that's when I started, like, more actively wearing ties you know but I'm like you know then I realized oh I'm like such a southerner I'm a dandy I'm like the epitome because what does a southern dandy do it goes to the house party and looks at the men and the women you know what I mean <laughs> like you know like so there's there's ways and I do sexuality studies you know like sexuality studies isn't about something in a book it's about how you move through the world and I realized in my entire life I've been moving through the world where guys are attracted to me but they're attracted to the male part of me you know, and women are attracted to me and they're attracted to that deep woman in me, but they like the kind of like, you know, the semblance of Butch. I mean, I went through the age of identity politics, you know, but I think I've known since I was 12, like I made the decision at 12, like, oh, I'll never fit in. So stop trying. And I think to me, and I know that sounds crazy to me, that's the, the epitome of country queer. The, those of us who've realized we'll never fit in. We'll never be the queers who are counted. I met Cody at the Gay Rodeo in Golden, Colorado in July of 2014. Cody sat down with me at a picnic table at the edge of the arena to talk about his work as a rodeo announcer in the international gay rodeo circuit, his life in rural Colorado, and his transition. Um, so the first question is your name and your age and where you live. Uh, my name is Cody Kay, and I'm 52 years old, and I live in Longmont, Colorado. So if you were going to describe where you live to somebody who's never been there, who has no idea what it's like, how would you describe it? Um, I would describe it as uh, small town America, Main Street, you know, that's the drag, 25 miles an hour. <laughs> um, we do have stoplights, not just stop signs, um, but it's it's growing. You know, there's a, a bigger outskirt of town now than there used to be even 10 years ago. Um, but it's a really cool, quaint little town. Um, lots of great people, uh, mostly blue collarish kind of community. And so, um, how do you identify? Uh, transgendered male. Okay. And so, where were you born? Where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? I was born in San Diego, California, on the Naval Hospital. Um, my father was in the military, so we moved around a lot. I was only there for like a year and a half, and then moved to Japan. Lived on different uh, Navy bases in Japan for five years. Moved back to the States. Um, we've lived in Virginia and Texas, and then we moved back to um, Korea. Um, for three and a half years, I was, so I was in high school in Korea. Talk about small town community. I mean, it was a small military base in Korea that we lived on, and um, and then I 
went to college in North Carolina and then transferred to Texas and then moved here from Texas. So, like, what, what makes you the happiest in your life at this point? Um, it's kind of funny. Because um, I've had a lot of people say, are you happier now that I transitioned? And I'm actually not happier. Um, there's actually, you know, way more things now that have come up because around it all um, that have made me unhappy, including dating. Um, but at the same time, I'm more content. So um, I'm happiest when I'm around people who have accepted who I am. Um, that makes me happy. And, and I get to just be me. That makes me happy. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's a lot of times when I'm sadder. But I wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't go back. I wouldn't change anything. Um, I am way more content. I'm more settled in myself. And uh, and it's taken me a couple, you know, it's been two years now, and it's taken me this long to finally not feel like just a geeky 14-year-old kid, which I totally did. Totally. Like, just, like, you know, who am I? And how do I wear my hair? And, you know, what kind of clothes am I going to wear? Like, the whole thing, everything that little kids go through, you know, as they're, becoming themselves and and I've kind of I felt like now I feel like I've come into my own and I'm more comfortable with myself even now and so I, you know so I, I'm happy as far as that goes. So. Do you feel like small towns are are like safe spaces for community? Um, I don't I guess I, I've never looked at either small town or big town uh, of being safe place like I create I, I create my own safe space you know um, like I was saying before about these people saying well why did why did you feel like you could tell us you know and I'm like I don't know I just felt like you guys were gonna be okay with it and and so I out of this brand new group of people that I had never met before. None of us actually ever knew each other in this meetup group until that first meetup. And we've become this cool little group of people, you know, friends and um, from all walks of life. And, um, you know, I just kind of created that on my own. And, um, and I think I've done that everywhere I've been even you know before when I identified as lesbian I just I just have never I have never made it a big deal and so I feel like nobody else made it a big deal either you know I think it's when everybody gets in an uproar about it all that other people get their feathers up like they feel like they have to defend themselves and what they believe in and I don't think that everybody has to be okay with me being trans as long as they're okay with letting me be okay that's all I ask for last in today's episode we'll hear an excerpt from one of the earliest interviews I did for this project the woman I talked to is a former nun who worked at a small newspaper in the rural western Massachusetts town where she was raised we met in a busy little grill in town in September of 2013. She didn't want me to use her real name, so we'll call her Frances. 
At the end of the interview, she told me she'd been so nervous about it, but decided to do it anyways, and that she was glad she had. She was 78 at the time of our interview. No, I grew up in Russell, which is, what, four miles down the road. Okay. And were you born and raised in Russell? I was born in Colebrook, New Hampshire, but raised in Russell. Okay. And, um, when were you born? Hmm? When were you born? April 6, 1935. Okay. I gave my mother a lot of trouble, too. Did you? Yeah. What, what kind of trouble? Well, you know, the birthing and the labor pains and all of that. Yeah. Oh. She told me I was terrible. So what was your family like in your childhood? Um, my father was French-Canadian. He came from Norton, Vermont. He part uh, Abenaki Indian. And uh, he educated himself on the farm. He was, he was a master electrician, and he did it all by study, home study. He had his license and everything. He was, had good jobs. All his life. And um, my mother was a hometown girl from Russell, mm -hmm. a homemaker. Mm -hmm. Although in her later years she did go to work because she was bored. You know, when the nest became empty, she needed something to do, so she went to work. And um, I went to local schools. I graduated from St. Mary's in Westfield. We had to go high school in Westfield. And uh, see, I was in a convent for seven years. Hmm. Around here? Um, yeah, the Sisters of St. Joseph in Springfield. It was a teaching order. And um, I left because two reasons. I'm not a teacher. <laughs> and they couldn't find anything else for me to do because my uh, marks in school were, you know, good, so they sent me, my whole class, to college, and they wanted us to teach, and that, that's what they needed at the time as teachers, and I, I could have been anything else. I wanted to be anything else but a teacher, so <clears throat> teaching just uh, drove me crazy, and then being gay was like a kid in a candy store. And I, uh, you know, fell in love, of course, but, you know, with a nun, not with God, and then caused myself a lot of problems, and I decided that that was not the place for me to be. So I left. They, they told me I'd grow out of it, because I, I imagine there were a lot of other folks in there that had the same problem, but I thought I was the only one and I should get the heck out, and I did. And I'm not sorry. It was a good experience, a really great experience to be there, but it, um, it was just for a time, and uh, for me to get the experience. And, and what that, that was right after high school? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was 17 when I went in, so if I had stayed out and worked a couple of years, maybe I would have had my head on straight, but anyway. <laughs> I didn't. I went right in. I thought... You know, I always knew I was gay, but I, I didn't even imagine that there was a possibility of anybody living that way. You know, I thought it was just no possible way, so I decided I'd, you know, go in the comet and not be fat. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
I, I was worse than him. <laughs> <laughs> Were there other people? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Uh, it's probably not good for me to publicize that back. Then, no. Of course. Yeah. 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 Mm. So when you say you always knew you were gay, how, like, how did you always know? When did you know? Well, I was three years old. Starting then, I can remember this this older girl. She must have been 12 or something, but I thought she was so gorgeous. I just followed her everywhere, you know. <laughs> she got sick of me following her. And then I, I got over that broken heart and went on to others. <laughs> <laughs> But I never had a, you know, a close, a real close encounter until uh, after I was in the convent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Although we did get kind of friendly in there, the person I was crazy about. But um, that's not very nice either for me to talk about. Yeah, yeah. I can place you by the way you talk You hear the music in your heels Just like any raised right southern boy You don't tell everything you feel I don't need to know much more than that Long as I've been knowing you If two Virginia boys can fall in love I reckon that's just what we'll do In my heart You are my darling At my gate You're welcoming At my door You're the one I long to win Love me like you love that other time That you find in those old songs I will love you with a tender Hope that I can come along I'll remember you at close of day And hope that you will come around It's a familiar and gentle way You and I can settle down In my heart you are my darling At my gate You're welcoming At my door I'll always greet you You're the one I long to win
that's it for this episode of Mountain Talk, featuring some of the 60 interviews I've gathered since 2013 for an ongoing oral history project called Country Queers. To learn more about the project and read other rural and small-town LGBTQ stories, you can visit the website at www.countryqueers.com or follow Country Queers on Facebook and Instagram. Music on this episode comes from Sam Gleave's 2015 album, Ain't We Brothers. Special thanks to Sam for giving us permission to use these songs for this program. We heard the title track in the beginning, as well as Two Virginia Boys in the end. If you'd like to hear this or previous episodes again, please visit our website at www.wmmt.org or download Mountain Talk wherever you get your podcasts. I've been your host, Rachel Geringer, and from all of us at WMMT, thanks for listening to Real People Radio.